Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and construction workers. <laughs> um, I'm your UX construction worker, Roman Burkhardt. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you? I'm catcalling people walking by the construction site right now. Oh, nice interface over there. <laughs> <laughs> So before we jump into today's topic, uh, we should just quickly mention uh, we had anticipated uh, having Nelson you on uh, our next episode. Unfortunately, Nelson had something come up. Larry got sick and I had a medical procedure. So basically it was just not happening last week. So we will reschedule with Nelson as soon as possible and look forward to having him on the show. I can't wait. I can't wait to have that product manager, uh, you know, box boxing ring match. <laughs> the grudge match. It is going to be the grudge match. I'm pretty sure. I've never <laughs> met Nelson, but you know, I'm already getting in a fight with him. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so right at the beginning of the year, I, uh, I posted on Twitter something to the effect of if you're considering uh, redesigning your logo in 2019, maybe just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at you, Slack. Yeah. Uh, we've had a few stinkers uh, come out uh, this year. And so uh, I was like, just thinking, hey, maybe we could just all step back from, from these logo redesigns for a while. Can I, can um, I just like say one thing about the, the, the Slack redesign? That's, that's been out for how long now? Like a couple of months? I think so. Yeah, a couple yeah. of months the Slack uh, logo redesign has come out. I still do not find the new icon on my phone in my dock on my laptop. It's I it's, it's like a, it's a struggle to find that icon every single time I try to go to Slack now. So thank Same. you Slack for um, redesigning that logo into something that I cannot f ever find anymore. <laughs> that was a, that was a brilliant move. Awesome. Good job. Every day it's a slap in the face about the brilliant logo and branding they had and the new piece of garbage that they have now. <laughs> I mean, there it's it's one thing to like see a new logo that the company rebranded with and immediately have that visceral reaction of, oh, what are they doing? It's mm -hmm. another thing two months later to still not be able to recognize the thing that you're looking for when you're trying to open up their application. On a yeah, daily when basis. You're actively looking for it. Yes. I don't know. There something's wrong there. I don't I I I don't know what they were thinking. And I'm it I I it pisses me off every single day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> so we've kind of jumped into the topic a, a bit here, but basically today we wanted to talk about when when should you redesign or when when shouldn't you perhaps? Yeah, so let's 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 talk about that a little bit. And I want to go back. There's this famous story of Netscape back in the 90s um going from I think it was um Netscape 4 and um they were, you know, they decided they that they were going to rewrite their 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 software completely from scratch because it would grown up so quickly and they had a bunch of you know, poorly written code or a bunch of spaghetti code or whatever. And, you know, they were going to um, go ahead and completely rewrite 
Netscape back in the 90s at some point. And it was a big disaster because it took them forever to do. They actually skipped a version, I think, and it didn't get until Netscape 6. Like, And it was like years later after they started this rewrite. And meanwhile... Internet Explorer, which had like almost no market share when this all started, be started to creep up on them and completely took over Netscape in the meantime. Now, part of that was the fact that, you know, Microsoft was giving it away for free with the operating system that everybody used. And, you know, Netscape was trying to sell it for 50 bucks a pop. And, you know, they eventually started giving it away for free and started to monetize in other ways. But eventually, you know, it was it was sort of a disaster for Netscape and it you know, took a, a company that was like one of the big first big, you know, darling internet bubble companies um, from, you know, a $3 billion company into basically nothing after it got sold off to AOL and absorbed and turned into nothing. And then eventually turned into to Mozilla, you know, Firefox at some point down the road. And Joel Spolsky wrote a, an, uh, a, a very famous blog post about this and talking about how deciding to rewrite your code from scratch is always a mistake. And then proceeded to talk about Netscape and, and, and and a bunch of other examples of how, you know, Netscape went and did this and it was the biggest mistake they ever made and it killed the company and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Ever since then, it seems like people have this huge aversion to saying, oh, man, you never do that, right? You never totally rewrite your code from scratch because it'll take too long and it's, it, you'll get behind and then you'll never, you'll never recover from it and you'll, be, you'll suffer the same, the same fate as Nets, Netscape did. Right. You'll lose your footing in the market. Right, right, right. So I want to explore this a little bit. So... Is it, is, can, can we, do we have similar analogies to, you know, doing a complete rewrite of, uh, you know, an application or software that you're using? Um, there's been similar arguments for that in that, you know, you have a product that people are using, they're used to the paradigms, it may not be perfect, but it's something that they start to build their entire, you know, workflow of whatever they're doing with that your application around your application. And then all of a sudden you decide, hey, guess what, we're going to pull out the rug and completely redesign it. And here's the new thing. And the old thing's now gone. Right, we're moving your cheese. Yes, moving the cheese. <laughs> People don't like it when you move their cheese. Sure, sure. Right. So I not to don't let me derail you um in your line of thinking, but I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but do you characterize uh that story about um uh, the browsers as being a redesign or, or a replatform? Well, I think in this case it was a replatform, but I think there is similar sentiments to the, you know, the redesign of, of a website or application or, or something similar. Right. Um, and it seemingly every time somebody talks about it, whether it's, you know, a, you know, a, a replatform or redesign immediately, everybody says it's is a terrible idea and you should never, ever do it. <laughs> From because from my point of view, I always see things you know, um, you know, absolutes and like that, and I always want to question them because I don't think it's always the case. Because you're a designer, 
It's nah. <laughs> maybe it's because I'm a designer, but maybe it's because sometimes it's actually the right thing to do. I don't know. Call me crazy. Yeah, totally. It's also been my experience that different parties tend to have a different outlook on that. So essentially, uh, a lot of business folks will have a, you know, this is too risky to, to do a redesign or, you know, basically replatform level redesign. But then like marketing folks love a good redesign, right? Uh, like when we talked about what we were going to talk about today, um, I Googled when to redesign and the Google search results were a hundred percent articles about how you should frequently redesign your site to improve your search engine rankings. Like there was nothing like user experience oriented in the entire list. What is it with these marketing people in SEO? And that's like the, the, the be all end all of everything that they do. It's like, there's no other world outside of SEO for them. I, that's fascinating to me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, looking through the, through that list, like, uh, I will not even link to it in the show notes cause these articles are all just garbage, but the, the one that I could bring myself to click through to essentially all these SEO oriented reasons around, you know, why you should add stuff all the time, why you should move stuff all the time and how you want to, uh, you know, make sure you, you, uh, you know, keep it fresh for your, your, your users, like freshness, uh, you know, is a, a thing that you, you have to go for. And so to me, it's, it's just, it's kind of funny because you, you get seemingly these ex extremes of viewpoint, um, but not like just kind of a pragmatic, uh, look at on the topic. Right. Well, I think we can all agree that change for the sake of better SEO and, and, and fresh content is probably the wrong approach depending, you know, um, uh, most of the time, I guess if you are a content site, maybe if you're news, then you're just already producing content all the time anyway. And, but I can't see that you're, uh, I don't know. I don't understand these marketing people sometimes. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if your whole business model lives and dies based on, you know, bringing people in, you know, through search engine results, then, I, you know, I, I can't imagine how tough of a, a, a business that would be to be in, to be living at, at Google's mercy. Uh, agreed, especially since they actively try to, combat people trying to game the system to get better <laughs> rankings and stuff. So yeah, that seems like a, a terrible business to be into, but I'd like to dig into the other side of it. The, the, the part that you mentioned about the business and the risk involved. So what exactly would, do you think is the risk involved in doing a redesign or a replatform for that matter of a site an application, a product? One hypothesis would be, I think it was a, a Gartner report that had gone out at some point uh, in our in our formative years, you know, probably back 2002, 2003, that said that 70% of all IT projects fail, like fail by any measure. 
And I think that put the fear into a lot of people about like, oh, are we going to take on like this giant process, this giant replatform, redesign, and then have it fail and then basically be the ones hung out to dry on this? Right. Was that uh, was that Gartner report? Was that like on specifically any IT project or was that government IT projects? <laughs> <laughs> Because I remember hearing something similar, but that, yeah. that, that could be that. Um, and was this, and how long ago was this? Because this seems like something I remember reading, you know, maybe 10 years ago or. Yeah, that's um, the thing. I think yeah. it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. And so I, I think that is one of those things where, you know, you hear it said once and then you just, you know, you quote it in meetings as if it's gospel. When, when I think about redesigns and replatformings, um, I kind of want to go into examples where people have done it, right? So one example, like Joel Spolsky um, famously talks about, is the Netscape one, which was a colossal failure. Um, and, you know, so that's, that, that, that is one thing. It's like, and so because of that, Joel Spolsky, you know, famously quoted, and this is in 2000, right? So this is like a long time ago. It's like, it's the, that um, trying to rewrote your code from scratch is the single worst strategic mistake that any software company can make, right? So that's a big, bold statement. And I think, you know, with the, the evidence that he presented at the time, that made a big, that made a big, you know, impression on people and people held on to that belief for a very, very long time, right? But I can find other examples of companies that decided to not let that hold them back. And um, one, I think, famous example is a company called 37 Signals with Basecamp, right? So if you don't know what Basecamp is, Basecamp is basically project management software for small development teams um, that the, the company 37 Signals originally made for themselves and then turned it into a business by selling it to people for like 50 bucks a month. And it was useful enough that a lot of people bought it and they turned it into a big sustainable business and a big profitable business for themselves. And they, you know, they rode that way for a very, very long time. And they, you know, they, they, but they got to the point where they, you know, we're starting to complain to com contemplate this very same thing. It's like, well, we know there's all these problems with what we do, but we have all these happy paying customers. So, uh, you know, and they remember the Joel Spolsky story of, you know, trying to re-platform and redesign your, your, your site and how much peril there is. And so that paralyzed them for a long time. So they didn't know what to do. So eventually they decided, screw it we're gonna change our site. We're actually going to redesign fundamentally how it works. We're going to write a brand new application and we're going to do it. You know, we're going to make Basecamp too. And so they did. In fact, they did it twice. <laughs> Not only did they make Basecamp two, but they made Basecamp three eventually. And they didn't turn off Basecamp one when they made Basecamp two. And they didn't turn off Basecamp two when they made base camp three, because they realized that one, them having base camp one and not breaking out of those models that they originally had. And those, you know, those, those models for software that they had before, um, just sticking with base camp one. Yeah. They had a lot of happy customers, but they also 
were limited by how they could evolve the product because they had all these happy customers. So instead of just taking Basecamp one and trying to iterate on it and, and, and make it different because that would piss off their existing customers, they made Basecamp two and they decided, Hey, we're going to make this new thing. We're still going to support old customers with the old thing. If they want to stay on Basecamp one, they can stay at Basecamp one as long as they want. And we're going to make Basecamp two and we're going to do this new thing. And they ended up making a base camp that more people wanted, but yet they still were keeping their old customers happy with the old version. And then they did it again. So they have three versions of base camp. They support all three of them. They say they're going to support all three of them till in as long as the web exists. And each time that they did it, they were able to increase subscriptions, increase revenue from doing these new things. So I think their story is interesting in the fact that they initially felt like they were handcuffed by the golden handcuffs of their success. And instead of resting on those laurels and, 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 and only thinking about the existing customers they had, they decided they were going to focus on customers that they didn't have and go ahead and just write a brand new way of doing, you know, project management and base camp. And, still support their old customers, but also open up the opportunity to create all these new customers that they wouldn't be able to get if they just stayed with the way Basecamp worked today. So I think that's a, a great model uh, in the case where your marginal costs uh, are practically zero, right? So it didn't cost them anything to continue to have Basecamp 1 running and just, you know, a relatively small support costs, I would assume. Uh, basically putting the, the product in a maintenance mode there. So maintenance, major bugs, security fixes, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, you know, in the, in the world of software, that's usually the case, right? Uh, that you're not going to be out a, a lot of additional money just by having, you know, multiple versions of your software at play. You would have iterated and improved and made new versions anyway, presumably, right? Like, most most products are going to continue to do that um, by basically putting a stake in the ground at each of those major versions. Though they were able to um, stay in touch with that uh, the customer preference, right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the 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 idea here is like you know they were they knew that they could do things in a different way that was better than the old model. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was going to be better for all their legacy customers. So why not just let their legacy customers be happy with the thing that they have, right? But what that does is it limits you for customers you don't have. And, and I think this is a, a situation that a lot of companies get into is they start listening to their own echo chamber. If you only listen to your existing customers, how can you make product that is going to satisfy customers that you don't have, right? Because, you know, you've basically created, like I said, an echo chamber of, you know, the people that are bought into the thing that you already do. But now you're ignoring all this huge amount of, of, of customers that you don't have. I always like to, to, and I have this conversation internally with people I work with all the time. It's like, you know, we, and I'll show, and I show it with my hands. Like, here's the, here's, it's like my hands are about six inches apart. Here's the amount of customers we have today, right? 
And then I take that same hand motion and I make go put my hands out as far apart as I possibly can. I say, here's the customers we could have in the future. Who should we focus on? <laughs> right? Yeah, you can't not focus on your existing customers, but maybe we should co- focus on those customers that we don't have because it's a way bigger group than the number of customers we currently have. And what's the best way to do that? Well, maybe let the customers that you have have what they have and because they're happy with doing it, but make something better and allow your old customers to upgrade to it if you if they want to, but allow them to keep the old thing if that's if that's what they want to stay on. Well, I like your point there to to make something better. So I think a, another similar approach is like what Apple's doing with their, you know, suite of iPhones. So I, if I'm not mistaken, you can buy an iPhone all the way back to seven at this point. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous. And so essentially that allows them to basically it doesn't cost them to design and, you know, uh, bring to market a lot of that is the the overhead of creating the new product it doesn't cost them any more to continue selling those old models um the other interesting thing there is that it it creates a bit of an a b test you know if if you have a a prediction of how much adoption you're going to get on your new um, model year um every year and you bring something to market and it performs way above or way below then your your previous models i should say uh, then that allows you to look and say, well, gosh, maybe people like fingerprint reader better than face ID or, or whatever, you know, but it allows you to, um, you know, maximize those, uh, those sunk costs that are already, uh, in your product lineup, uh, while also pushing towards the future and, and giving people an upgrade path. It's an indicator that, you know, you've done something <laughs> very wrong to that point, but, you know, the, the concerns in the moment will, you know, will still be legitimate. You know, it was, it was obviously the moron who had your job before you did, who uh, made all the mistakes <laughs> and now you're there to clean them up. Right. So, uh, w- what are the cases though, where it is legitimate to not want to do a redesign? I guess it depends on how well you know your customers and how know you know, you, how well you know user base. And it's like, are there any unmet or unarticulated needs there, right? And if you if you you know if you know your customers so much that you've got to the point where you don't have any of those unarticulated, unmet needs, then why would you want to change anything <laughs> at all, right? But I I don't think I've ever run into that situation. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's that's part of what we do, right? So we're not talking to people who aren't redesigning something. Um, but n- nevertheless, I, I I guess in all actuality, there's not so much an option of we're never going to redesign or or replatform so much as which approach are you going to take? Are you going to take an in place incremental, you know, progressive? Uh, uh, enhancement of uh, an existing system um, and or are you going to do uh, you know a big bang redesign uh, 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 or for that matter are you going to innovate in another channel so in other words we've got product a and a is going well and people are happy with it so we're going to work on B completely separate of A, um, much like the model you're talking about with with um, 37 signals or or Basecamp. Right. So there was a um, 
there was a meeting post, a medium post about this um, fairly recently by a guy named Herb Codhill. And we'll put the link to this article in the show notes because it talks about the whole Netscape thing and it talks about the Basecamp thing. But they also have a couple of other interesting examples. He has a, another couple of interesting examples in here of different things that different people did. Um, uh, one that might be familiar to the people in this audience is Gmail and Inbox. Right. So Gmail, you know, they had Gmail for a long time and then they had this new thing that came out. It's like it's inbox and it's a different way to do email. And we'll 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 have a focused inbox so you can only see the stuff that's really important to you. And the other stuff, you know, the other marketing stuff will go somewhere else. So you don't have to see that every day and you can go and look at it if you want to. And so they had like this whole new Gmail that was like kind of living right beside the old Gmail and you, they never like forced you to, 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 to adopt inbox. But then eventually inbox kind of went away because what they did was they took those features that were in inbox that were working really well and they started incorporating it back into the Gmail application. So there's another way of saying, Hey, you know, everybody's you know happy with Gmail, but we want to try out some new stuff radical stuff and start to get some feedback on this and then um, not necessarily, you know, replace it with it, but like take all the best ideas that worked really well and start implement um, integrating them back into the, the, the flagship product. So the inbox story was really a clever way of approaching this, but I kind of hate it because <laughs> I was a big fan of inbox. And so kind of the promise there was that inbox was going to be its own thing and have its own model of doing things and ultimately, they still forced those new paradigms onto Gmail users. So the whole premise of not upsetting the people, you know, in your core customer base, that goes out the window when you bring it back over. But then they they shut down inbox with some of the some of the things that weren't brought back over to Gmail. So I don't have those features anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, sucks to be you, Roman. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I never, I never, I, I like looked at inbox once. I was like, Nope, <laughs> not for me. And I'm no. glad I didn't now because then I would have got pissed off. Right. At least with the, the right. with the way 37 signals did it, it's like, Hey, yeah, you can do use base camp one for as long as you want. You want to use it, you know, forever. That's fine. We're, we're going to support you. Right. So, but Gmail was, you know, ah, we're going to try this stuff out and then nah, we're just going to get rid of this product and use good old Gmail with some new things in it. So now they just, they created a bunch of other new happy customers and then right. pissed them off by <laughs> discontinuing the service. Thanks Google. Yeah. <laughs> so the final example that Herb Codhill talks about, which is really funny um, I think is an actual Joel Spolsky company. <laughs> Joel Spolsky had this company called Fog Creek Software, and um, their original um, product they had was a bug tracking software called Fog Bugs, right? And so, you know, Fog Bugs was the, you know, it, and eventually, you know, Jira came along and other um, bug tracking software came along, but Fogbugs was, was one of the original ones and it went along for a very, very long time. And of course, you know, Joel Spolsky famously saying, hey, <laughs> replatforming your software is the single worst strategic mistake you could ever make. 
of course, never made that mistake because they just let fog bugs go and go and go and go. But fog bugs started to get on us what they call a sad decline <laughs> and it didn't really you know it didn't you know it it's it was really useful software and it was very successful for a while but at some point it started to trail off in usefulness as new um uh, upstarts and whippersnappers like you know jira comes along and and starts to eat into that software and into that that market share um so at some point they decided that they were going to make something completely different and they ended up um, working on a product called Trello, which was, you know, could be used for bug tracking, but it could also be used for many other things, um, including, you know, uh, tracking software tasks, but even just tracking your normal, you know, anybody tasks, right? You could run, you know, a business on Trello um, using their Kanban board, right? It's like, here are a bunch of tasks that we want to do. Here's um, a bunch of tasks that are being done right now. Here's a bunch of tasks that are already done, right? So they started out as sort of a, you know, a, a, a software tool, but then they realized that it could be used for anything, including bug tracking, but it could also be used to run your small little business if you had a bunch of things you want to do, or if you wanted to use it as a personal Kanban to, hey, here's all the stuff I want to accomplish. Here's the stuff I'm working on now. Here's stuff I did accomplish. So they kind of did what Basecamp did, but they just made a completely different piece of software that was different enough that it actually it could replace fog bugs, but also did much, much more. So anyway... So they kind of went in a similar direction as, as, as Basecamp. They made it something completely new, which was a completely different paradigm from what they did before. But um, it actually not only did the, the things that the old thing did, but like did new things and it sort of expanded the, the market, the total addressable market for the product that they had. Right. Um, which is an, an interesting thing. And then uh, eventually fog bugs was started kept, doing its decline and they eventually sold it off to somebody else and it got absorbed and kind of died a slow death. But <laughs> the interesting thing was like in that whole thing that um, uh, Fog Creek software actually created their own programming language in order to, <laughs> in order to keep fog bugs going. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. So, so replatforming your software is a, always a strategic mistake, but Coming up with your own programming language <laughs> made sense somehow in what they were doing. Wow. Well, I think the the only other um, you know argument against uh, a redesign or a replatform uh, that I can think of is something like Jared Spool writes quite a, quite a bit about it is the the notion of uh, change aversion um, in our in our products, um, and so I. I won't go down the the rabbit hole of all the arguments, you know, for and against change aversion. Um, but what's your take? How would you answer that? In order for a change to be accepted by users, it has to be significantly better than the thing that they had before. And so that's, I think, the I, I think that's a a big part of the equation of deciding whether or not you know, to introduce a major change to, you know, software or not, right? Is it, it has to be a big enough change to get, you know, legacy users over the hump of how they used to do things into the new thing. And um, so I kind of like the, the, the 37 signal model of 
of completely bypassing that and saying, hey, we're not going to actually do that to our customers, right? We're just going to let them do the things that they want to do in the way that they want to do them. But we're going to find a way to address, you know, the the larger market that may not want to do it that particular way. The approach from 37 Signals goes back quite a ways uh, into a time where I would guess that users were much more change averse, particularly with anything uh, that was business software, just because this stuff was so uh, new, you know, uh, working online for, you know, business uh, productivity was not something anybody was accustomed to doing. Um, so I could see where the, the insight then would have been very much order uh, oriented around, let's not, you know, throw these people off when all they want to do is just manage a simple to-do list. Um, but I, I tend to wonder now whether those changes uh, are, you know, trigger quite as much of a reaction. Well, I mean, if you think about it, when they started Basecamp, um, a web application in the browser was a brand new thing, right? That was like nobody that, that was they, they were one of the first companies to like make something you know, uh, an application in the browser that was, was doing, you know, pretty advanced stuff and using Ajax to, you know, do asynchronous calls to the servers and things like that to, to make a truly dynamic web application in, 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 in a, in a browser. Um, so they were like early on in that. And so any decisions they made product wise were just based upon this, like, well, we don't know what's possible. So we're going to do, we're going to do with what we know right now. And as you know, the platforms mature and 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 design patterns start to emerge in in the browser for how to do web applications. It makes a lot of sense. It's like, hey, we kind of you know we're we're limiting ourselves if we stay in these old models that were based upon a very new way of doing things. Um, so you know, what's the best way to get us to, to get into these new paradigms of how app web applications work without you know pissing off old customers? You know, there's a lot of good reasons to to redesign and and, and replatform. Um, just trying to uh, go for a straight SEO play is not one of them. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to say. No, the marketing uh, people know what they're talking about, man. I, they they must. <laughs> they get paid a lot of money for this stuff. Well, I don't even mean to make it sound like it's not important because it totally is. Google uh, is important to a lot of businesses. I get that. That's critical. But what I will say is what's always a, a worthwhile reason to, to redesign your site is to make it responsive, to make it more performant, or to make it accessible to people with disabilities. Oh, I 100% agree with all that. And the thing that I love about Google lately is that doing those things will help you score better in your SEO. Yes. Slow clap for Google. Yes, slow clap. No, seriously. I mean, I think that's actually um, something that they've done that's extremely positive and, I, and, and, and a good incentive to do the things that you should be doing already. So when to redesign? You should redesign when in a way that's not going to piss off your existing user base. However, you can accomplish that, right? Whether it's creating something incrementally better creating something that is so much better than the old thing that everybody's going to want to do the new thing or creating something that's um, quite a bit better and addresses a different market that you don't already have, but keeping the old thing that you, that you had before to keep your existing customers happy. I think there's a, there's several different ways to slice that uh, slice that pie. 
Well, hey, I have to uh, embarrass you just a little bit because I want to talk about something really important. Happy birthday, Larry. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you very much. Stuff Designers Love. So for this week in Stuff Designers Love, um, yeah, I had uh, a birthday this month. Um, my family bought me a, well, basically bought the whole family, um, a package to go do indoor skydiving. Oh, nice. So if you're not familiar with this, um, there's a place called iFly. I'm sure there's other places that do this too, but the one we went to was called iFly. And uh, basically there's a gigantic fan in the basement of this building, of this like three-story <laughs> building. And there's a tube that this fan blows through and you walk in there with an instructor and you have this fancy flight suit on and you walk in and it's like jumping out of a plane without having to jump out of a plane. That's fantastic. Uh, that looks like a really good time. Yes, it is a lot of fun. So we got to, we went, to, we took the whole family. Of course, every, you know, there's, you know, people in my family are very appreh apprehensive. So um, my wife was pretty apprehensive about it. Um, my son, he was just like all about it. He was like, oh, I totally want to do it. Totally want to do it. Totally want to do it. Um, my youngest daughter wanted to really do it until we got in there and she was like, oh, I'm scared. Um, but she ended up being fine. And we all ended up doing it. It's like you go in there and yeah. The kids can do it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, my wife, my, my youngest daughter is five and she was able to go in there and do it as well. Yeah, so you show up to this place and of course they have to weigh you so they know how much, you know, how, how, how high to turn up the fan. Um, and then you go in, you put on this, these flight suits and helmets and goggles. And then you got some guy that um, takes you into a classroom and shows you a cheesy video. And then because <laughs> <laughs> you can't do something like this without the cheesy video. It's part of it, right? Right, right. Yeah. So and then, he, you know, he goes through the motions of telling you, you know, how to to orient yourself. They got like a little table in there that they can you know, lay on and show you how to, where to put your hands and how to move your, um, how to move your legs. And then of course they have to teach you the hand signals because when you're in the fan room, you can't talk to each other because the fan is um, of course very, very loud. So they, you have to learn these hand signals so that they know what to do. Like one of them is to tell you to put your chin up because basically any place where you put your face is the way you're going to go. Um, so they need you to get your chin up so that you don't like dive down if you're looking down or looking up. Um, uh, and then there's a thing to tell you to bend your legs um, or extend your legs because that, you know, the, if you have your legs extended, you catch more air and you're going to go up higher. So that's kind of a way you can make yourself go up higher or lower is by extending your legs or pulling them back. And then, ah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, so it was really a very, very interesting, very cool. And then of course you could pay it 10 extra dollars and the, the instructor will take you up really, really high. Uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun, but yeah, it was, it was a good time. I was, I, you know, when I got out of the first time I did it, I was just like, I had this like huge adrenaline rush, of course, because that's what the, these things are. They're basically a thrill ride where they, you get adrenaline rushes. So it's for adrenaline junkies. Right. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a really good time. Everybody in my family did it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I want to go back and spend probably too much money going back and doing <laughs> it again. 
All right, so a couple of pertinent questions. Uh, is there any anxiety about, like, the fan? Is that, like, a scary element? Uh, well, you don't actually see the fan because, like, number one, there's, like, this, like, wire mesh that you're standing on. And then if okay. you look straight down, it's all lit up and stuff, and there's, like, a bunch of grates down there. It's, like, this right. big – it's, like, a big, deep V-shaped structure. Um, okay. So you don't actually see any fans down there. So it's, like, you're, it's not like you're, like, oh, if this – this metal grate like breaks, I'm going to fall into a fan and get chopped up. Okay. So you're not a frog in a blender. No, you're not a frog in a blender. No. <laughs> okay, cool. And then what about, uh, do you get the sensation of falling? Cause I know a lot of people don't like that. Uh, so it doesn't feel like you're falling. Um, but my guess is like if after, after the initial jumping out of a plane, it probably doesn't feel like falling either, right? Because you just have, you know, 100 miles right. an hour winds blowing up at you. Right. But the interesting thing is, and we didn't do this, they also have a virtual reality add-on that you can do. And so oh, you wow. can make it look like you're jumping out of a plane over Hawaii or some other exotic <laughs> oh, place. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which so I like the scenery from a different locale. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you're jumping out of a plane over, you know, some some other place. Or I guess there's also a kids one where you can like uh, there's a how to train your dragon thing where you're like, you know, falling out of a plane. But you see this these cartoon characters flying around. But save me toothless. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's our fave. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So um so yeah, it was a lot of fun. I uh, and I think you know doing the virtual reality of you know jumping out of a plane would be actually pretty pretty intense. I highly recommend doing the iFly thing. It's it's expensive, especially the first time you go. It's like it's it's kind of expensive, but it gets less expensive. Oh, they got to get you on like the first timer thing. Yeah, but it gets less expensive the 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 second time you do it. Like like seriously, the 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 if we were to do the exact same package that we did for the, for five people and 10 flights. Um, it's, it's less than half. Well, so the obvious comparison is, uh, that, that particular iFly that's right there in the same block as Top Golf. Yes. Which we've done as a, you know, corporate team building thing. Right. And that's a, a great fit. Uh, how would you compare that for like a team building thing? Oh, I think it would be awesome. I, I think it's totally appropriate for team building. Now you can only do, let's see, five. You could probably only do 10 or 12 people at a time in the, cause I mean, they, they have like you, they have the tube and then they have like a little waiting area inside the tube for people to take turns to going in. Cause you only go in for like a minute at a time. Um, but uh, yeah, so you could do. You know, if you could, you could do, you know, a wave of 12 people at a time, but then you could, if, if you have more than that, you could probably do it in a couple of different, uh, a, a couple of different cohorts. If you found this show useful, usable, and desirable, please consider writing a quick two sentence review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember that UX Like Us is your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UX Like Us and let us know what you'd like us to have on the show and what you're discussing in your practice. So I'm Larry King at LA King on Twitter. And Roman is at Stuperman. And thank you for listening again. Hey, baby, I like your affordance. <laughs>